0: Excuse me, one second. Sorry about that, folks. I had to turn off the fan that was going to my office because it was definitely making some noise on the microphone here. Well, hello, and welcome to Asbury Methodist Church's podcast. My name is Forrest Divinney. I am the lead pastor at Asbury, and we hope this podcast will enrich your walk with Christ, increase your knowledge of the Bible, and hope that it will be a little entertaining for you as we go. Let's dive in. We are getting we're getting close to the end of the book of Exodus. If we're, if you're following along in our 100-day Torah reading plan, we'll be finishing Exodus um, like mid next week or so. I want to say, like, on Wednesday, we'll read the end of Exodus, and then we'll be going into Leviticus, which is obviously the most exciting book of the Old Testament. Um, and so, uh, today, we're going to talk about one of my favorite stories. in Not just in the Old Testament, but, but really throughout the entire Bible. Now, we have not read this yet um, in our, like, regular reading plan but we're gonna talk about the golden calf and it's in Exodus thirty two which I don't believe we'll be reading until the beginning of next week. but this is like this is just a great story. I love this story so uh, to summarize and you are probably familiar with it if you have grown up in the church but just to summarize um, the people are, Camped at Mount Sinai, Moses has gone up to the top of the mountain. Now, it's like Exodus 20 through Exodus 31. This is all God talking to Moses, and he's giving him not just the Ten Commandments, but also the instructions on how to build the tabernacle. And so Moses is memorizing these things. He's writing some of them down. But he's on the top of the mountain alone this whole time. And the people of Israel are camped down below at the base of the mountain, and they start to get kind of restless. And what's really, what's what's so compelling about this, by the way, is there's this really strong juxtaposition between what's happening at the top of the mountain and what's happening at the base of the mountain, right? Because at the top of the mountain, Moses is communing with God. He is in the presence of God. He is l- learning from God. He is writing down God's commandments, carving them into stone. He is he is in like the holiest place anyone could imagine. And he is not just there for his own purposes, but he is, he is explicitly being instructed what to tell the Israelites about how to be holy and how to be in God's presence. And then you go to the base of the mountain and the Israelites are thinking, oh man, Moses must have forgotten about us. It's time to make our own God. Let's just make our own God now. Uh, and this is like the wildest thing to me that these people, these people who witnessed firsthand, The plagues in Egypt, who witnessed the pillar of cloud and fire leading them through the desert, who witnessed God parting the seas, who watched God descend on the mountain in cloud and fire and thunder, think to themselves, yeah, let's just make a new God. What is up with that? So there's a couple of things. Um... Weirdly, it's not actually clear that Aaron sees this as making a new god. Um, And I know that sounds weird to us, but this just has to do with the ancient mindset. It's almost as if Aaron thinks they're just making a representation of the god they are already following. Now, this, of course, would be in violation of the commandment to not make any images. Um, and that might explain, that, that explains why Aaron goes along with it so quickly, right? Uh, and, and here's what I mean by this, right? Um, in chapter 32, verse 5, after, after they have made the golden calf, And they utter this blasphemous declaration, right, in verse 4. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, which is, of course, complete nonsense, because that is not the God who brought them out of the land of Egypt. Um, In verse 5, Aaron sees this. He builds an altar before the calf, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Um, So there's some disconnect here between what the people think is happening and what Aaron thinks is happening, right? Aaron seems to think somehow that they've just made this statue and this is for the God of Israel. Um, the people don't seem to see it that way, right? The people seem to think that they have made new gods for themselves. Um, and it's insane. This this whole story is just wild, right? and, and, so then you have this great moment in verse seven and the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. <laughs> I love this, right? This is like, you know, cause like we have moments as parents, of course, when if our kid does something that's just, you know, spectacularly dumb or, or incredibly aggravating, right? Like I might look at my wife and say, your daughter is doing this and you need to uh, correct it. And, and, I don't know how this works for all of you. I know in my family, um, when we do that, it's it's usually like if I if I say to my, to my wife, your daughter is doing this, usually she is if she is doing something that is very Mercedes like, right? I mean she's she's got some mannerism, some uh, aspect of her personality that is very similar to my wife's is emerging, and I say no no you gotta deal with this it's your daughter, and um and she'll do the same thing to me when 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 my daughter is is. Sort of behaving like I do, like you know, adopting the worst aspects of who I am, and so I love that God does this to Moses, right? Because up until now, right, they've been God's people. God's the one who brought them out of Egypt, and now God says to Moses, "Your people, whom you brought up out of Egypt, have corrupted themselves." Uh, it's I, I just I laugh out loud every time I read that. It's hilarious that God is just throwing them all under the bus here. Um, <laughs> and then of course god threatens to annihilate them right he's just he's just gonna wipe them all out he's done with them he wants nothing more to do with them uh but moses intervenes right moses stands in the gap in verse 11 moses implored the lord his god oh lord why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, right? So he reminds, he reminds God, and no, 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 God, don't you put all this on me. Uh, these are your people too. <laughs> it's, it's great. The relationship, by the way, between Moses and God, I, I think is probably my favorite in all of Scripture because Moses has this level of um, friendship with God that no one else in the Old Testament ever ever has, and when when Jesus to his disciples. Calls them friends at the end of the Gospels. Um, To me, that's that's what this harkens back to, is is the way that Moses and God relate to each other. And I think there's some inspiration there, that we can be like this, right? Moses clearly has um, enormous respect for God's authority and his majesty and his power, but he also isn't afraid to stand up and push back. Uh, He isn't afraid to remind God Of God's promises and of God's obligations. And it's really interesting. Moses convinces God not to just annihilate the people. Now, this interplay between God and Moses has, uh, it's been, it's a lot of Christians I think have stumbled on this. Some will say God was never really going to wipe him out; he just wanted to make sure Moses was willing to stand up for what was right, and so he tested Moses. I don't think that's true. I I, I just don't think that's what the text is telling us. Um, it seems it seems pretty evident that actually God did intend to just wipe out the people and start over with Moses. And Moses convinced him not to. And, and this, is, um, this is a hard thing for a lot of us to wrap our minds around because we have this idea that God's will is sovereign and immovable. Uh, and the problem with that idea then is, um, what, then what's the point of our prayers? Uh, and some people say, "Well, our prayers are really just more about changing us." But, but that, friends, that's not actually how the Bible portrays prayer. Um, the The, the Bible is pretty insistent that our our prayers change things. That that um, outcomes are different when people pray versus when they don't pray. It's not a guarantee of anything, um, but. It matters, and so the story is actually very clearly indicating that Moses changes God's mind. Now, did that really happen in real life? We don't know. These stories in Exodus, now I believe that they're based in fact. Okay, I want to be clear about that. Right, I believe there was an Exodus. I believe the Hebrew people were slaves in Egypt and were led out of Egypt. I believe the plagues happened. I believe they crossed the Red Sea. Um, I'm talking about the specific details of Moses interacting with God. Did, did they really happen like this? We just don't know. Um, because the, actually the point of these stories, particularly ones like this in Exodus 32, and the way that Moses interacts with God, the point is not necessarily to record historical detail accurately. The point is to use the story to think theologically. The story explores theological ideas. In this case, it's exploring this idea that our prayers can convince God to do things differently. And that, you know, again, that doesn't mean we can control God. It does not mean that um, God is like a cosmic vending machine and we just pray hard. It doesn't mean there's like a magic formula to get what you want through prayer. It does mean, it does mean that we, that that God collaborates with us. He's going to achieve his purposes in the world one way or another, right? If Moses doesn't convince him to not wipe out the Hebrews, he's just going to start over with Moses and Moses' family, and he'll still find a way to save the world, right? The 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 outcome, the ultimate purpose that God has put forth, that's never in doubt, but the means by which he achieves it could be different. And so, here Moses convinces God to do it this way. And that's probably the best way for us to understand that, that, that you know, God is going to do what God is going to do. He's going to achieve his purposes, um, but we have the privilege of collaborating with him. And so we can pray, and, and let's use our church as an example, right? Um, our church here in Corpus Christi, Texas, has the potential to reach a lot of people for the gospel and to transform this community for Christ. And it could be really, really powerful. But if our church were to fail, God would put another church here, right? So we want to pray. We want to pray that God uses our church, right? God's going to reach people here one way or another. But if we want to be part of what God is doing, we ought to pray that God uses our church. And if we're all praying for that, then God will use our church. So uh, that's what, what's going on there. Moses does change God's mind. And then he's going to go down to the base of the mountain and he's going to uh, he's going to inflict his own punishment upon the people. And I love it. I love, there's two things about this that is that just phenomenal, right? So the first thing he does when he gets down there is he takes this golden calf, grinds it into a powder, puts it in the people's water, and makes them drink it. Now, I love this because it's a really, it's it's a powerful object lesson. Because look, if you have small children, you are already familiar with what happens to heavy metals in the human digestive tract, right? Nothing. Nothing happens to them, right? Your your body doesn't break them down. Uh, if your kid swallows a quarter, you're sifting their poo for days afterwards, trying to make sure they pass it. All the, the gold dust these people are forced to drink, they're going to pass it. They're going to have glitter poop. And I know that's disgusting and childish, but here's the thing. Moses gave them a powerful object lesson. He took their idol... And look what he turned it into. Really powerful object lesson, because the next morning they're all going to see that. Um, That's a big deal. Now, the next thing that happens is he talks to Aaron. And so in verse 21, Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you brought such great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, "Make us gods who shall go before us." As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, "Let any who have gold take it off." So they gave it to me, and I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. This is this is great stuff, right? This is comedy gold, right? Aaron, Aaron says, "Well, you know these people; they're just evil. They're awful, right? They they right as if he had no part to play in any of this." And then he, I love this, right? We put the gold in the fire and this cap just came out. I don't know how it happened. I don't know who who made this thing. It just, it, we put the gold in the heat and it came out as this. I don't know. It's like the, this is the dumbest explanation. It's so weak and sad. And I, it's, I just, I laugh every time, right? This is, this is like sitcom level comedy. Um, <laughs> There's no defense here. So you have this great story. It's, it's this comedy of errors, right? Where the people... Moses is taking too long. They get impatient, so they make themselves this new God. Moses gets angry. He makes them drink it so that they have to poop it out in the morning. And Aaron's trying to just say, well, I didn't do anything. I just put the gold in the fire and a calf came out of it. I don't know how it happened. And and it's all this just incredible mess. And, and the, you know, the amazing thing is, so I I think people have this tendency. People have this tendency to think, um. That, well, you know, if only God gave me some sort of sign, I would have no trouble having faith. If only I could, I could see something that would just convince me that God is there and that this is what God wants, I'd be fine. And as part of that, right, I, people read stories where the, they read about the pillar of cloud and fire and the amazing signs and wonders of the Old Testament and the miracles that Jesus performed in the Gospels. And they think, man, if God would just do that in my own life, oh, my, it would be so much easier to have faith. And to that I say, no, 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 you have not read the story properly. Because look what happened to these people who saw the plagues in Egypt, who saw the Red Sea parted, who saw the pillar of cloud and fire, who saw all of this stuff. They had more tangible, physical proof of God than anyone else in all of history. And they still lost faith and made an idol. instead of wishing that we had some sort of proof, instead of wishing that we had something that would would serve as like a guarantee that God is who he said or any of that kind of stuff, we have to start accepting that we may have to simply have faith in God Without such things, we may have to have faith in God without ever seeing any sort of proof in our own lives. And the thing is, that may be the best kind of faith. We we need to accept that there is nothing, nothing we can see, nothing we can experience that will sufficiently prove that God is who he says he is, that will sufficiently prove that 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 we should follow God. There there's nothing that we can experience in this life that will guarantee that we can have faith. Right. And that's what this boils down to, right? It is a search for something external to us that will guarantee that our faith will never waver so that we don't have to worry about that, so that we don't have to find an internal source of faith, right? We want something external to us. And it doesn't happen, not because God is unwilling to do it, but because even when God does do it, it doesn't work. That is the depth of our sinful nature. That is the depth of the problem humanity can have all of these magnificent irrefutable obvious signs of God and still lose faith and still maybe maybe lose faith isn't the the best term we can have all those signs and we can still choose to reject God think about that that's what it really is right it's not losing faith that's Losing faith is a euphemism that we have adopted to to make it sound better when we choose to reject God, because that's really what we're always what we're doing. Today. We're choosing to reject God. The Israelites in this story are choosing to reject God. They've cho- they've made that choice, and they've got all these clear signs, right? I mean, and and we just think, man, how can you possibly do that? But the reality is most of us actually have clear signs in our own life as well maybe there aren't pillars of cloud and fire but we've got them the choice to to embrace or reject god there is nothing external to us that can guarantee we'll make that choice the right way it's all internal it's all in our own hearts and that's kind of a scary reality when you think about it if there's an external thing that can that can either guarantee that we will accept god or that we can blame for our rejection of god then we don't bear any sort of responsibility but that's not the way it works nothing external to us can guarantee that we will accept god nothing external to us can cause us to reject god it's all Internal, we bear the responsibility for our choices. Don't make for yourself a golden calf. We'll be back next week with the podcast, maybe on the beginning of Leviticus. We'll find out. I haven't decided yet what I'm going to do for next week's podcast. So uh, until then, folks, God bless.